Hey everybody, it's Steve, and welcome to episode 6 of Tangible Tech. To start off, I need to let all of you know that the website is up and running at tangibletech.net. Now, all you need to do is head out there and you get a daily dose of fun and hopefully fascinating science and tech stories. You can also subscribe to the RSS feed to get the latest news the second it comes out. Now, as I told you the last time in episode 5, the site is designed to be easily viewed on pretty much any device, and it's also designed around speedy loading. I think you're going to love it. There are no ads on it or anything. Just give it a try and let me know what you think. So check it out. And like I remind you all the time with this podcast, tell everybody about it. Okay. Enough of that. Let's get into today's topic, which is the new space race. Now, unlike the space race I grew up with in the 1960s, it's not country versus country, ideology versus ideology. Instead, we're finally seeing a true space race to see who can get us into space and back safely, the cheapest. Now, in the 1960s and 70s, the space race was defined by one goal that was set by President John F. Kennedy, and that was to be the first to get a man to the moon and return him safely to Earth. We did that on July 20th, 1969, and after that first exciting step on the moon, well, things kind of fell apart. Sure, we had six flights and 12 men who made it to the moon's surface and back. We sent moon buggies called LRVs or lunar roving vehicles on the last three missions so the astronauts could move around a bit uh, faster and easier. And all in all, the astronauts brought back an amazing amount of samples, data, photographs, and videos that helped us to really understand more about the moon. But the big problem was that at the same time we were finishing up the space race, we were also spending tons of money on the Vietnam War and starting to to spend untold trillions on President Johnson's Great Society, otherwise known as welfare. Well, as soon as Apollo 11 returned safely, there were calls to shut down the Apollo program as soon as possible to save money for those other programs. Sad, really, considering that the Apollo program was never really a big line item in the American budget, especially when compared to the Vietnam War and the Great Society. Well, after Apollo 17 returned, we had a few Skylab missions using old Apollo hardware that was supposed to go to the moon. We had a flight called the Apollo Soyuz Test Project that was really a way for one of the original seven astronauts, Deke Slayton, to finally get himself into space. And then we started up the space shuttle program. Now, the space shuttle was supposed to replace every other launch vehicle out there, which at the time included the massive Titan, the Delta, and the Atlas. But the shuttle program never got to the flight frequency rate uh, that was touted during its design phase, basically because the spacecraft had to be almost rebuilt after every flight, thanks to the ceramic tiles that uh, protected it from the heat of re-entry. So add to it those big honk and solid rocket boosters, one of which failed during launch and destroyed the Challenger orbiter and killed seven astronauts, 
and a continuing problem with uh, insulating foam on the external tank falling off during launch that ended up destroying Columbia on its re-entry and killing another seven astronauts. And altogether, you've got a very expensive and pretty dangerous launch vehicle. Now, the U.S. Armed Services wanted every one of their missions to go on the shuttle. So when the Challenger disaster shut down the shuttle program for almost two and a half years, the trusty Titan, Delta, and Atlas boosters got a reprieve, and they were the only way to get satellites, not people, into space. The largest number of flights in that program in one year was in 1985, with a total of nine shuttle flights making it to orbit and back. In many years, there were only a handful of launches of the shuttle. Fast forward to the end of the shuttle era in 2011 and up to present day here in 2018. Astronauts are going to and from the International Space Station on Russian Soyuz spacecraft. These are cramped three-person spacecraft that have been flying with some evolution and modifications since 1966. They're still launched on the expendable Soyuz launcher, which also had its first flight in 1966. Sure, it works, and it's fairly cheap, and it's definitely reliable. However, with American policy towards Russia constantly changing, our crews, and those of the other ISS partner countries, can't always count on a ride to the station on Soyuz. With many countries considering long-duration missions in lunar orbit, at stable gravitational nodes called Lagrangian points, or even thinking about going to Mars, a small, cramped three-person space vehicle is not the answer. So that's where the commercial space business started stepping up. Boeing has a seven-passenger vehicle called the CST-100 Starliner that hopes to make an unmanned flight by the end of 2018 on an Atlas V launcher. While SpaceX has been flying its Dragon spacecraft for a few years and hopes to also fly an unmanned version of its crewed Dragon 2 spacecraft upon a Falcon 9 by the end of the year. Now, this being the space business, and with NASA overseeing the safety of crews and spacecraft, things will probably be delayed for all of these commercial spacecraft until 2019. Now, there's one other possible spacecraft, and that's a great little uh, reusable lifting body space uh, plane being developed by Sierra Nevada Corporation with the great name of Dream Chaser. It's being designed to carry from two to seven people to orbital destinations like the International Space Station, and it will glide back to Earth for landing and reuse. However, it's planned to launch on a non-reusable booster. At this point, they're looking at the Atlas V made by United Launch Alliance. There have been uh, other thoughts that it could also be launched on a European Ariane 5 or SpaceX Falcon Heavy. NASA has its own spacecraft under development by Lockheed Martin. It's called Orion, and it's part of the long-term NASA plans for an interplanetary manned spacecraft. 
Of course, this program has been de delayed time after time, and now the first manned mission is expected to happen in 2023, with a mission that would fly by the moon and begin construction of what's called Gateway Station. That's a lunar orbital platform that would be used as a staging point for interplanetary missions. Let's step away from the spacecraft for a minute and get to the real meat of the matter, the launch vehicles. Now, launching rockets has always been ridiculously expensive, and the only way to reduce the cost is to reuse as much of the spacecraft as possible with a minimum of maintenance in between flights. That's why the space shuttle was really such a bust. It was a 1970s design that reused the spacecraft after a lot of rework, but it threw away the large external tank on every flight, and the solid rocket boosters required significant rework before they could be used again. Now, the other workhorses of the launch business include the ULA Atlas V and Delta IV boosters, both of which are totally expendable and therefore quite expensive. There's the European Ariane 5 launcher, those old reliable Soyuz boosters I talked about earlier, and a few other assorted boosters that really aren't used as frequently. Now, all of these are expendable. Now, think how expensive it would be to go to the grocery store if you had to buy a new car every time you went. So here's where Elon Musk and SpaceX stepped in and disrupted the entire space industry. At this point, the company has gone from barely being able to get a small Falcon launcher off the ground to nailing simultaneous landings of two Falcon 9 boosters on the first Falcon Heavy flight. It's commonplace for the company nowadays to launch two missions in a single week, and the company is not only reusing the expensive boosters by landing them, but it's also trying to figure out how to recover and reuse the expensive payload fairings that protect satellites from supersonic wind blasts on the way to orbit. Now, the Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy are already having a big impact on the space business, with everyone from nations who want a cheap satellite launcher to the intelligence community signing up for launches. But Musk isn't satisfied with reducing the cost to orbit as much as he has. He wants to get it even lower by making a totally reusable launcher called the BFR, Big Falcon Rocket. This thing is gigantic. Rather than having only 9 engines, it would have 31 in the booster. That's about 11.8 million pounds of thrust compared to the Saturn V's 7.5 million pounds of thrust. I want to see one of those go up. Now add to that the spaceship-slash-tankers-slash-satellite-delivery-vehicle that would sit on top, and you have a massive rocket, 348 feet long, 30 feet wide, and completely reusable. Now to get the cost to go down even further, Musk wants to build a lot of BFRs and use them for fast suborbital flights to pretty much anywhere on planet Earth that's near an ocean. Now, the idea is that you'd have floating platforms near major cities like New York, London, Washington, D.C., Miami, wherever. Shuttle passengers uh, out to the platforms on fast boats, 
launch them to just about anywhere in about 30 minutes, and their rocket would land on another platform. If you think Musk has disrupted spaceflight, well, just wait until he kills the market for intercontinental air travel. Now, why would anyone take a you know 14 to 16 hour flight from Sydney to London, for example, when they could do the same trip in a few hours via BFR? That's including the transfer out to the floating platforms. Now, Musk's big deal is that he not only wants to be able to take people and payloads to orbit in BFR, but also be able to return old satellites and space junk to Earth, cleaning up that junk in space. And when the spaceship uh, version of the BFR upper stage is refueled by the tanker version, guess what? It becomes an interplanetary spacecraft capable of heading to the moon or Mars. Musk's goal is to pretty much save humanity from itself by getting all of the eggs out of one basket, putting humans on other moons and planets. Now, Elon Musk isn't alone in the space race. Jeff Bezos of Amazon has spent billions of dollars of his own money developing the new Shepard spacecraft for suborbital tourist flights to the edge of space and back. He's already outlined the next-generation reusable rocket called New Glenn, which will be an orbital space vehicle. Of course, Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic, well, they're a few years behind schedule with Spaceship Two, but the company is expecting to start taking passengers to the edge of space in the next year or two. Now, the existing companies in the space business aren't taking this lying down. United Space Alliance, good old ULA, is working on a new launcher called Vulcan that may use the BE-4 engines being developed for New Glenn. Now, this won't be a reusable launcher, but the company is beginning to look at possibly recovering the engines, which are really kind of the most expensive part of any non-reusable launch vehicle. Even Europe's Ariane Space has uh, started talking about making part of the next-generation Ariane 6 vehicle reusable, once again lowering the cost to space. Now, there's not much out of the Chinese or Russians at this point, but knowing how the Chinese like to copy and then improve on Western technology, there's a good chance that we'll see some sort of BFR clone coming out of the country, perhaps with Russian backing. They are currently working on uh, a jumbo jet, so that's uh, you know a possibility. Now, what's NASA doing in all this? Well, they've been developing their own non-reusable mega-launcher called SLS, or Space Launch System, for years, and it's expected to be the launcher for the Orion manned spacecraft. It, too, will be about 11.5 to 12 million pounds of thrust. Well, so far, SLS is years behind schedule. It's way behind budget, or excuse me, way over budget, and nobody seems to really have a good idea on where Orion should actually go. It changes with every presidential administration. Well, like the old Saturn V launch vehicle that took astronauts to the moon, it's not meant to be reused. Just my opinion, but it seems like the SLS is more of a corporate and government welfare program designed to keep the big legacy aerospace companies in business and keep a lot of uh, government employees in jobs than it is a viable launch vehicle program. 
There are dozens of other companies that are competing in the low-cost space race in a lot of different countries. And the goal of everyone is, uh, you know, even starting to grab interest again. That's an air-breathing craft that could take off from a runway, get to orbit, and return and land at most large airports. So maybe we will finally have our true space shuttle someday. The first space race was exciting for those of us who lived through it, but this space race is designed to keep us in space for good. It's a great time to be alive. That's it for this week's podcast. I'm going to be taking some time off, so the next episode should be coming to you in uh, mid-September or so, maybe the end of September. After that time, I'll be getting back to a more regular schedule for the podcast. For Tangible Tech, this is Steve Sandy, and remember to go out and take a look at Apple World Today at appleworld.today and, of course, the Tangible Tech website at tangibletech.net.